Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Our text tonight is verses 8 through 14. Calling this study Debt Belief. Christian financial classes are extremely popular. I know the Church of Christ down the road has a sign that they're going to be holding one, and uh, they kind of go in waves. If you've been around churches for a while, uh, they're popular for a while, and then they trail off, and then they become popular again. We, not too long ago, took some people through Financial Peace University, and whether it's FPU or Crown Ministries, one bedrock principle in all of them is to stay out of debt. There is, however, an ongoing debt you and I owe. It's one we must pay. It's one we will never be out from under. It's the one in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has filled the law. And so we as Christians literally owe a debt to society, and it is to love one another. So that's the debt that we are to pay, uh, and obviously we can never, uh, will never be done paying that debt as it were. Let's talk about love for just a moment, very briefly. Love is a key attribute of our Heavenly Father. Even multitudes of non-believers know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 4, 8 tells us flat out, God is love. It doesn't say that God loves. He certainly does. It says He is love. It is an essential attribute of God. It's His very nature, love. And as a result of His nature being love, He loves. Now, I think it's important, therefore, that we judge things we read and hear according to the love of God. Is the author or the speaker suggesting something that would contradict the fact that God is love? If so, then the argument and the conclusion of that author or that speaker has to be wrong uh, because we know that God is love. Here's an example I've been using lately. Often Christians struggle with the issue of God's sovereignty versus man's free will. You will hear that a lot. Uh, You read about it. Well, if that's how you approach problem passages in Scripture, God's sovereignty always seems to trump man's free will. But that's absolutely the wrong way to approach the problem passages. It's wrong entirely. Because sovereignty is not an attribute of God. Now, don't get me wrong. God is sovereign. Make no mistake about it. But sovereignty is an activity of God. It's a choice that God makes that flows from His nature. And so, therefore, we would have to say that His sovereignty, His sovereign rule, is subordinate to His love. So God is love, and then He creates the universe, and He decides to be sovereign over the universe. You know, God didn't have to decide that, did He? There are people who say God, you know, deists who believe God created the universe and then just let it go. He had better things to do, I guess. Uh, But no, God created the universe and he reveals himself as 
sovereign over it, but sovereignty is not an essential attribute of God. It is an activity of God. It is a choice that God makes. His sovereignty is always subordinate to his love, and never would it be vice versa. Never can love be so, uh, subordinate to sovereignty because it's, it's who God is. And for me, this means that since God is love, he limits his sovereignty by giving me free will, seeing to it that all things work together for my good. I'll answer one of the questions that we're going to have tonight in a minute. It was a last-minute web question. Uh, it went along the lines of... Uh, if God is so holy and does not create evil, then how did Satan come into existence? I know he was not bad at first. God says he was made perfect, uh, but iniquity was found in him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the whole question of how did Satan go bad or where did that evil come from? Well, it came from the fact that God is love and he created beings with free will. That's the only way a God of love can really create a being that isn't an automaton or a robot. If God wanted automatons or robots, he would have created them, and, and they could all say, I love you, I love you, unless they maybe, you know, went bad or something, and then they'd need an adjustment. And, and so God said, no, I don't want that kind of creation. I want, for, I want beings that, that can think and feel and, and that can make f choices. And he gave choices. Now, we don't know that much about the fall of the devil and his angels other than he uh, decided he would like to be like God. But free will, uh, it doesn't answer every question. It, it creates some questions of its own. But as far as I can tell, the only other alternative in the God-Satan thing is that God created Satan to be evil and therefore, God is the author and the creator of evil. God determined that he would be evil. And in some theological systems, God is a determinative God. They, are, uh, they talk about the determining will of God and everything that happens. God not just allows it, he causes it. He makes it happen because if he doesn't, then he's not sovereign, they say. And so you have to be careful. This is a tricky concept, this sovereignty of God. If you buy into the complete, absolute, 100% sovereignty of God without free will, then God is, in fact, the author of evil. And every evil thing that happens, God decided would happen. There's a very popular reformed preacher uh, by the name of John Piper, who everybody, they love his devotionals, they read his stuff. Uh, he believes God was the determining cause of 9-11 and of every other disaster because in his universe of sovereignty, God either controls everything or he's out of control. And so, Saying that God limits his sovereignty by his love, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves a pretty big problem for me, and that is the fact that God is the author of evil, which he is not. And so God is love, and that is behind what we're talking about tonight. When, when the Bible tells us to love one another, we are to uh, emulate and be like our heavenly Father. Since God is love and since he so loved the world and since we represent him in the world in the absence of Jesus, then we're to love others with the love of God the way he loved and loves us. So how do we do it? How do we love others with this love of God? What are the steps, as it were? 
Well, Paul seems to suggest in one sense that we keep the commandments of God, but not externally. We do it internally. It's therefore not by effort. It's by enablement. You see in verses 9 and 10, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What an incredibly simple concept that is. It, the fact that if you, uh, if you do no harm to a person, if you do no harm to your neighbor because you love them, then you automatically fulfill everything that is in the Ten Commandments and everything that is in God's law. The idea is almost too simple. If I love another, I will not commit adultery. Adultery defiles others, and it shows disregard for all those involved, and it is extremely selfish. And so if I truly love not just the, my wife or my husband, but if I, you know, I, I will not, uh, but if I truly love another person in a Jesus kind of a way, then I, I don't commit adultery. I don't think about committing adultery. I rebuke that, and I, I know that it's sin because it can't come from love. It can only come from the flesh. It can only come from selfishness. If I love another, I will not commit murder or steal. Love does not rob others of their life or their property. If I love another, I won't lie against them or covet anything of theirs. If I love my neighbor as myself, I will automatically fulfill every beneficial law. And, of course, my neighbor is anyone with whom I'm having contact. It's not intended to, you know, be a small group of people. It's not my contiguous neighbors on either side of my house. Uh, it's not the next closest. It's not the neighbor I borrow eggs from when I, you know, it's, it, it's it, I am everyone's neighbor and they are my neighbor. And so the, the, you know, Paul is just saying, hey, you just need to love everybody with the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is an enabling that God gives you and then you find yourself representing God to them. And so this is why love is the fulfillment of the law. If I am walking in love, my attitudes and my actions will be consistent with all God's commandments, whether I am specifically aware of them or not. Here's another way of saying this. I don't look at another person and say, I'm going to try really hard to not lie to you. I want to do it so bad, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, what are you doing? I'm trying not to lie to you. Why? Well, because lying is bad. Instead, I look upon them and think, I want you to see Jesus... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you, for me, for everyone. Even if you're a Christian, he gave, we are remembering that he gave his son for you, and I want you to see Jesus. You're the only Jesus I'm going to see on earth. I'm the only Jesus you're going to see. Instead of worrying about trying to not do things to you, I should try to let you see the Lord living through me. If that's my attitude, I don't have to try to not lie. I just don't lie because I'm too busy loving the person. It doesn't enter into my mind to, to lie or to cheat or to steal or to commit adultery or do any of those things. Uh, in fact, Paul moves in that direction now in these remaining verses in terms of just 
uh, loving others with this pure love. He says in verse 11, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do this, he says. Well, do what? Well, I would say pay your debt to society by loving one another. While we ought to do this without the need for any additional encouragement, Paul, knowing our struggle with the flesh, mentions an incentive. He says the Lord is coming for us at any moment and all opportunities to love one another on earth will end. And so we're, as, a, as Christians, what this text is telling us is that you are already enabled and empowered to love one another with the love of Jesus Christ because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can have the mind of Christ. You have all these things. So I, don't have to refresh, I really don't have to refresh myself on the Ten Commandments every day to know how to treat people. I just need to love them in the sense of wanting them to see Jesus. But we have the flesh to deal with, each of us in our own way. And because of that, Paul says, when you, you know, it, it might be a good idea to motivate yourself to keep from getting lazy or sleepy or off track or falling into sin. It might help to remember that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The Lord is coming for us at any moment. Knowing the time, he says. You remember the rock group Chicago asked, does anybody really know what time it is? One of my favorite Chicago songs. The answer is yes. Christians know what time it is. We say it's Jesus time. You know, like in sports, don't they have things like that? Like it's crunch time or it's go time or whatever. Well, it's Jesus time. That means his return is imminent. The meaning of for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed is just a way of saying, you know, if, if I got saved believing that the return of the Lord was imminent and he hasn't come back yet, it sounds silly. It's, it's bad English, but it's more imminent. Now, imminent means, means right now. So you can't be any more imminent than you are right now. It's imminent. Right now it's imminent. Right now it's imminent. could happen right now it's imminent. It can't be more intimate. Or in, <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. can't be more imminent, but that's what Paul is saying. He said it's even more imminent than it was when it was imminent. And he's trying to encourage you to think, okay, all right, I, I, this is it. This is Jesus' time. I can't afford to fall asleep spiritually or not be on guard uh, be, I, I got to be about this loving one another business I, uh, because I'm working on paying my unpayable debt to society right up until the time that the Lord comes. The night is a reference to the absence of Jesus from the earth here. John 9, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the world was plunged into a kind of night again, and his light is only reflected by those who know him. But now, even more than before, the night is far spent. Again, that can only mean that the return of Jesus is more imminent. His return is the day referred to here, and you are to know the time. Uh, if you get criticized for thinking too much or talking too much about Bible prophecy, good for you, because Christians should know the time, and the time is at an end. That's why we do these prophecy updates. I know some people think, even I think sometimes I talk too much about prophecy. 
but good for us because we are to know and understand the times in which we live. Daniel, in the Babylonian captivity, reading the book of Jeremiah, which we're studying now on Sunday mornings, got to a passage which indicated that there was only 70 years of captivity that were decreed against the people. And Daniel got all excited. He read prophecy. He read it literally. And he knew that they were nearing the end of their captivity. There were no real signs that they were near the end of it. They were still exiled in Babylon. There were political rumblings, of course, between the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians, but no one knew what was going to happen. But he believed it, and he began to pray accordingly, and and some amazing things happened. And so we want to be those that know and understand the times in which we live and, and proclaim that the return of the Lord is imminent. In this verse, don't let the word salvation throw you. We normally use it to describe a time in the past when a person got saved. But salvation involves daily sanctification, daily walking with the Lord, and it involves the ultimate glorification of being with the Lord. All of that is considered your salvation. And so salvation, yes, you're saved once at a point in time, born again, on your way to heaven, but salvation as a whole encompasses everything that starts there and finishes when you stand before the Lord. Salvation sanctification, glorification. And so when these Bible writers use that word, you need to know what sense they're using it in. Uh, It's not your salvation is near, meaning I thought I was saved. You mean I have to keep working right up until the end to, to be sure that I'm saved? No, you do keep working right up to the end, but you're saved, being sanctified, you'll be glorified. Now he expands the illustration in a very colorful way in the next three verses. In verse 12 he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, nor in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that these verses describe a Roman soldier who has duty But he's been out all night partying. He's been out all night in revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. He needs to awake from his sleep, put on his armor, and take his post on duty. And not for just that day. No, he needs to cast off works of darkness once and for all and be able to walk properly in the day. And so Paul is looking at a soldier, it, it, you know, a Roman soldier, wouldn't have been unusual for a Roman soldier off duty, maybe go out carousing all night. Some of us in our past, it didn't matter what your job was, didn't matter how serious it was, you were out carousing all night, get home early in the morning, get up barely alive, run a comb through your hair, look at yourself cruise through your day, hope nothing bad happens if you have a serious job so that you can carouse again and again and again. And so Paul says, hey, you know, this is the picture of the soldier, but he needs to just, he needs to be ready and get ready and he needs to cast off those works of darkness. You can be on duty, but be far from ready for duty. The soldier who is not serving an assigned shift needs to be getting himself ready for his next shift, not participating in the works of darkness. Six works of darkness are listed in pairs. By the way, 
the, the recent, I haven't read much about it, and so I'm not making a statement about it, but all of us have heard of the uh, Secret Service scandal down in South America, the Secret Service agents who were having prostitutes come to their rooms during their off time when they were supposed to be protecting the president. And whatever, you know, politics we make of that and wherever it, we fall, I think all of us are initially appalled by that thinking, aren't these guys supposed to be ready all the time? Aren't, I mean, aren't they there to protect the American president, the American ambassadors, the, you know, who, I mean, are, are they really just there to clock in for eight hours and then carouse in South America? I think it surprises all of us because we expect them to be ready to jump out a window and take a bullet for somebody. And it just, it just doesn't seem right that a person at that level clocks in and clocks out. And so that's what Paul's saying is you're a soldier. You're a Christian. You don't clock in. You don't clock out. You're always to be on duty. And so he gets into six works of darkness listed in pairs. We'll just go through them briefly. Revelry and drunkenness go together in that revelry originally meant a festival in honor of the god of wine. And so you'd have posters around town for revelry. The obvious companion to a festival to the god of wine is what? Drunkenness, drinking wine. And so you're not to become drunk nor do you uh, involve yourselves in the revelry of this world. Licentiousness and lewdness go together in that licentiousness is sexual excess and lewdness is the mental state that lusts for it. God commands us to abstain from all physical sexual excess and from the thoughts that lead to them and from all sex outside of marriage. Excuse me. Strife and envy go together in that strife means quarreling and debate which is incited by our envy towards others. We're to abandon all such envy that leads to strife Well, this is true in the church, it is especially true of our envy of the present evil world that leads us to striving for material satisfaction. The flesh is that principle left over in our unredeemed bodies that demands we satisfy ourselves in sinful ways. You become a Christian, you're born again. The Bible says that God gives you a new nature. The Holy Spirit indwells you, your spirit comes alive, and you have a new nature but you quickly find out that there's something left over from your old life, your old nature. We call it the flesh. It is a, some people call it a principle or a habit or whatever. <clears throat> there's something that's in your unredeemed physical body and mind that has a propensity to sin and to satisfy appetites in sinful ways. And so Paul says not to make provision for the flesh. Well, first of all, how would you make provision for the flesh? Well, you do it by yielding to any of those six works of darkness, obviously. Make no provision for the flesh means you need to starve it and cut it off. Don't give it any provisions. Remember, we're kind of in a military uh, mentality here, talking about a soldier. Paul's saying, don't give any provisions to your flesh. Give it nothing to operate with. If something is sin for you, you can't have it in moderation. Moderation is a lie uh, when it comes to sinful habits. There's no such thing as sinning in moderation. But people always think that they can do it. People who got involved, I know plenty of people, Christians included, once they were drunks, they were drug addicts, they, you know, whatever, 
And then they, the Lord delivers them, mostly miraculously, usually the first time miraculously. And then they get to a point where they foolishly think that they can bring some of that back into their life in moderation. Because they, you know, they start on their own reading about Christian liberty and they don't realize that their flesh is still active and there's that urging of the flesh that, you know, it says, you know, maybe you were a drunk like I was and the flesh says, well, man, that glass of beer every now and then, that's not going to, remember how good that ice cold beer was? Man, you know, mowing the lawn, you'd hardly even get a buzz off of it. And, you know, you, know, you don't even recognize that, you know. And then you're reading about liberty and stuff. Or, or then what's worse and what's terrible, you get around other solid Christians and they just start pouring you drinks and you think, well, these guys... They're more mature than me. And, so, and then you get into this idea that I can drink. Now, I'm not saying that no one can drink. I'm saying that a drunk can't drink in moderation. It, it just doesn't work out. And so Paul says, don't make any provision for the flesh. If you were a drunk, you can't drink. If you were a drug addict, you can't do drugs. They're going to legalize marijuana pretty soon. If you smoked marijuana and had a problem with it, just because they legalize it doesn't mean it's not going to be a problem for you anymore. Do you know what I mean? So this idea of moderation, it's just not working. It's not biblical. So Paul says, don't make any provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If something is sin for you, you can't have it in moderation. You can't feed it just a little. By the way, it's interesting. To, you can't carry this metaphor out too far because you can starve your flesh all you want but it won't die. It just won't die. You could be a drunk and not taste a drop of alcohol for 30 years and then start drinking again, and you'll find out that your flesh is just as much alive as it ever was, and you become a drunk again. It's, I'm just generalizing. I'm not talking about everybody, but the flesh, don't get the impression that you have defeated the flesh and that it's gone and that you've achieved some kind of sanctification, some kind of holiness in this life. You may starve your flesh, that's good, but it's always ready to wake up. And as long as we're in these bodies, we will struggle against the flesh. And Paul says, let us put on the armor of light. And he means by that, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about, Paul likes to mix metaphors. Uh, he's been talking about this metaphor of the soldier, and so he's thinking about putting on the armor, but then he remembers he's talked about the night because Jesus had left, and he left the world kind of in a night state because he was the light of the world, but we are the light of the world now as little Jesuses, and so when we put on the armor, it's the armor of light. Get it? It's kind of a cool mixed metaphor. You have to have kind of a mixed-up mind to follow the Apostle Paul, but it all makes sense. So you're the so it's not something mystical or anything, you know, the armor of light. Ooh, I've discovered the armor of light. You know, it's just it's just a metaphor. Body armor is a good thing if you're going into battle. We have a lot of it at our disposal as believers. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, "But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on a breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation." To the Corinthians he wrote, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God by the word of truth, by the power of God, and by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Of course, the best known and most detailed passage on Christian armor, Ephesians chapter 6. Here in Romans, you learn that when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're putting on heavenly armor. 
You put on the Lord Jesus Christ when you yield to the power of his indwelling spirit rather than to the lust of your flesh. The armor, the armor of light, is be, uh, it's called that because you're empowered to holiness in your walk. Think of light this way. What if someone could shine a light on all your activities? Things you do at home, things you do online, things even that you think about. You ever snuck up on one of your kids to try and find out what they were doing? Just like, what's going on in there? Having a Bible study, Dad. Okay, no problem. But you know, people, you know, when I was a kid, at least I tried to, I would, I would hide. I, if I was doing something wrong, I would do it in the dark or I would hide somewhere. And, you know, and then, it, God forbid, the light would come on and I would be caught. And so that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. And so he says, what if someone were to do that? Well, and he says, well, God is that someone. He sees all those things and more. You and I, therefore, ought to behave in ways that could be revealed and not make us ashamed or embarrassed. Privacy rights and laws aside, I want privacy rights and laws as much as you, but in a spiritual sense, we should be able to be exposed by the light and not have any concern. God forbid it would ever happen, but, you know, if the police came and kicked down your door without a warrant and for no reason, they shouldn't be able to find any criminal activity in your house. They should only be able to accuse you of being a Christian, and like Daniel. They looked through his window, and they saw him praying, and they said, hey, that's, isn't that illegal? Didn't we just pass a law that it's illegal to pray and that whoever prays? Talk about a specific law. Daniel, I think, was the only one who did that, and uh, they ended up throwing him in the lion's den. And so that's the idea here Paul's getting. He says, hey, you're, su- you're supposed to represent Jesus so much so that if people stormed your house... And shown the light on your life, they would see the light of Jesus Christ, that the only thing they could really convict you of is being a Christian and of serving the Lord. Some of you have had extensive background checks for a job, really intrusive. I remember when I was, uh, I'd never understood this because I was, uh, I'd never had one before, but when I first became a chaplain 15 years ago, I remember my, my family called me from San Bernardino. My dad, my brothers, they say, hey, who, are these, who is this Lamore Police Department that's calling us? I go, what? They go, yeah, they're, they say they're doing a background check. They want to, I, mean, I mean, they were really thorough in their background check. They called my parents and my brothers. Luckily, I have no ex-wives they could talk to. They talked to Pam, and I think uh, they called Pam, and she thought it was a joke at first and started answering some of the questions in a sarcastic way that made me sound like I was a criminal. <laughs> but they, it was weird, and I thought, wow. But they didn't find anything. Now, I, I could have pointed them in some other directions, but, I mean, there's, I just never got caught doing some things. But as a Christian, that's the idea. You know, it, there, you should be able to survive a background check. Walking in the light as to my own activities, walking in love towards others, what a great summary of what we are to be about, knowing the time. Amen?